is a storage engine for fast analytics on fast data. Todd Lipcon is an engineer at Cloudera, and he helped build Kudu. Todd, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Good to be here. Before we talk about Kudu, let's set some context. What have been the biggest changes to the Hadoop ecosystem in recent years? Uh, so I think, actually, if you look at what's changed on the in terms of the capabilities, really the storage side of Hadoop, where we actually put the data in the Hadoop ecosystem, hasn't changed a lot in the last probably six or seven years. Um, certainly, we've added a lot of new features. So security comes to mind. We've added things like encryption on disk. Uh, certainly done a lot of performance improvements and added other features like uh, snapshot capability in HDFS. But the the core components on the storage side really haven't changed. Um, I think around 2004 or five or so is when the very beginnings of HDFS started being built. And it became the Hadoop project in 2006 or 2007, I think. Uh, and then a couple of years later, HBase came along and that added some, some big capability. But that's kind of all that we had for the last uh, maybe seven years. Um, a lot of the changes have happened more on the upper level of the Hadoop stack, meaning like the access and processing engines. So a few years back, we had uh, Yarn, which came as part of Hadoop 2, and that allowed us to put different processing applications onto the same cluster instead of just MapReduce, which was the kind of old school processing engine. Uh, and another big change that's happened in the last few years is the introduction of Apache Spark. Apache Spark is very good, obviously, for data science and iterative computations. And um, we see it really as the, the next evolution from MapReduce. Um, so we've definitely seen a lot of evolution and new components on that upper layer of the stack, but not a whole lot on the storage layer of the stack until uh, the introduction of Kudu a couple weeks ago. Sure, and we will get into Kudu eventually. But to talk more broadly, Hadoop architectures often need two types of storage. One type of storage, such as HDFS, that provides for fast scans for analytics, and then another type of storage, such as HBase, that provides fast random access. What are some typical use cases for these two types of storage? Uh, so we see a lot of cases where people are using HBase for the ability to stream inserts and updates in. So you might have some data coming from like a, a sensor or a time series database or even a website uh, where you get transactional data, like a user visited something or a machine generated some event. And HDFS doesn't really give you an API to insert rows by row. Uh, it's kind of like a bulk load only kind of system. So people end up using a system like HBase to be able to ingest that data as it arrives and perhaps deal with corrections or other updates to the data. Uh, and then they find that they'd like to do analytics and they end up writing jobs which dump the contents of HBase, which has kind of been staged there, into HDFS, so they can do faster analytic performance in that system. Um, so you end up with these hybrid architectures. There's a, an awful lot of our customers use the two together, not just HDFS or just HBase, uh, but the data through the lifecycle of collection and later analysis kind of ends up hitting both systems, and then they, they have to kind of wire together these architectures to synchronize them. And for listeners who might not know, what is the difference between a column store and a row store? And how is that relevant to our conversation? Sure. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to explain only in audio. It's easier with a diagram, but I'll do my best. Um, so basically a row store, if you think about a relational database, you may have a row that has five columns. We'll call them just C1 through C5. And if you imagine how those bytes are stored on disk, a traditional row store looks pretty much the same way like a TSV or CSV file would. You have first the first row, and it has column 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then you see the second row on the next line, column 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. Um, this is very good if you want to seek to a particular row and read all of the columns for that row, because they're right next to each other on disk. So you do one disk seek, one I.O., you get all of the columns. It's not very good, however, for analytics, because what we find in a lot of analytic applications is that you have only a couple columns that are of interest for a particular query. Uh, so an easy example might be to imagine a large user database. Um, let's say your Twitter or Facebook or something. 
and you've got a user table, and it has maybe 100 columns because you, you track a lot of information about your users, and you just want to know, like, what's the, the median age of users on my site? So you imagine there that if you need to pull out the age column, it's actually just a small integer, but because all of the, the different columns are next to each other on disk, you've got to skip over, you have to read and skip over all those other columns as you do your analytics. So in the case of the TSV file example, you're reading the whole file, and you waste a lot of I.O. parsing and skipping over all those fields that you don't really care about. So now we get to the, the idea of a column store, is we take that file and basically transpose it. If you look at it as a matrix, you can transpose it. So instead of having the first row, all of its columns, then the second row, all of its columns, you lay out all of the first column and then all of the second column, um, meaning you have C1 for the first row, C1 for the second row, C1 for the third row, et cetera, all the way, you know, your millions of rows. And then you start maybe in a second file, all of column two. So going back to that Facebook example, instead of having one TSV file with a billion users of your Facebook, you have a separate TSV file, which is just each separate column. And then when you want to do that analytics on just the age, you can read the age file and, um, just read the data you care about, you end up reading much, much less data. Uh, so that's one of the key advantages is reduction in I.O. And then the other key advantage is once you have your data laid out this way, a lot of compression algorithms can work much better because um, you, know, you have a lot of these age integers next to each other. You get a lot more repeated data because you don't have other types of data uh, intervening in between different age values. So you can do a lot of tricks. Um, there's things called differential encoding or front compression. Um, there's a lot of integer packing techniques you can use. There's tons of academic literature in this area of how to compress a sequence of integers. And it's really easy to do that if you just have the sequence of integers. It's much harder to do that when you start worrying about, you know, the user name is coming in between each successive integer, et cetera. So to bring it back to sort of the top level, um, away from the implementation more towards how the user experiences it, the basic idea is that these column stores are much, much better for aggregation and analytics, uh, but they're not as good if you want to you know, do an online application where you just read one user and get all of the rows, because now you've got to go read all these separate columns with separate disk seeks. So it's this kind of fundamental trade-off between the online applications and the analytic applications. Okay, and how do these like column stores and row stores, how do they map to the pre-existing types of storage that the Hadoop ecosystem has? So in the context of HDFS, HDFS itself doesn't make any distinction about you know, rows and columns. It's just storing bytes. So you can put a column-organized file or a row-organized file on HDFS. Um, so in HDFS, you might store a TSV file, uh, which is row-organized. Another common data format is Avro, and Avro is also row-organized. But for analytics, a lot of people switch from those row formats to a format called Apache Parquet. And Apache Parquet is a column-organized file. Um, so HDFS can really do both. Uh, HBase, some people call it a column store, but it's actually somewhat a misnomer. Um, it's, it's actually internally implemented as a row store. It has this concept of column families, which sort of approximate this idea, but you don't get the same performance that you get from a true columnar store. Um, like uh, Apache Parquet. So as you've mentioned, when storing static data sets, developers are typically using these binary formats like Apache Avro or Apache Parquet. What are the downsides of these formats? Um, I'd say the downsides is if you're collecting data from other systems, you may have data that's generated in a text format. Uh, so for example, in a web app, it's a lot more convenient to you know, generate JSON records or TSV files. Uh, once it's actually stored, I think there's pretty much no downside to storing in a binary format. Uh, most of the tools in the Hadoop ecosystem can read these different formats. Like if you have a Parquet dataset, you can query it with Impala. If you want to do SQL, you could use Hive. You could use Spark for um, more advanced analytics. Uh, it kind of doesn't really matter which underlying data format you use once it's in that structure. Okay. So that's the case for static data sets. For storing mutable data sets, developers typically use semi-structured stores like HBase or Cassandra. Are there downsides of HBase and Cassandra? Yeah, so 
again, it comes back to the analytic versus online performance, where HBase and Cassandra have this, this really nice property. As you mentioned, they're semi-structured, meaning you don't really need to know what your data is going to look like. You can just start inserting data. Um, the, the most obvious example of this is that when you create the table, you don't need to specify which columns exist. You just write some rows, and you give it columns, and they show up. Almost like each row is an individual hash map or something. Um, so that's great as you're ingesting the data. Uh, it's very, very flexible. You might be able to provide like a service internally and not worry about knowing what kind of data will show up. That said, the performance you get for analytics isn't as great because the storage engine has no idea, for example, that this particular column is always an integer and it can't do these tricks like bit packing the integer. Um, it has to maintain quite a bit of metadata on a per row basis about which, which column names actually exist in that row, et cetera. Uh, so the downside there is, again, the analytic performance. Right. And uh, to put a finer point on this, what are the types of analytics applications that people are using where they need these high-throughput reads that they can't get with HBase or Cassandra? I would say a lot of it is, uh, goes back to kind of traditional data warehousing type applications. Um, I would say that mostly is things like aggregation, uh, trying to look up you know, some patterns. If you're a retailer, you probably want to understand sales by zip code and different categories of your products. Uh, those very traditional type of applications, they're still relevant in the Hadoop landscape. Um, of course, the you know individual item sales is not a huge data set, but you might care about your web traffic or different types of interactions on a site uh, by location. So the, the typical SQL style aggregations are pretty common. And then going to the more advanced stuff that you can only do in Hadoop, it's things like training a machine learning model or training a fraud detection model if you're in finance. In these kind of applications, you really do want to look at all of your history. You want to look at every trade that you've ever done if you're a finance company and understand the, the risk that you incurred with those trades and how they worked out, et cetera. Um, so that, that requires basically doing this enormous scan over your entire data set. And that's where something like a columnar store can be much more performant. So as you've said, many Hadoop application developers have to deal with this gap between structured and semi-structured data stores. So they often have to maintain their data in, in two different formats. What are the strategies that people typically use to, to deal with this gap? Uh, there's a bunch of different techniques we've seen in the wild. Some of the listeners may be familiar with this term, the Lambda architecture. Um, which I kind of see as a workaround almost, where you say that, hey, we have a fast store. I think they actually call it the fast store, uh, which is the thing that takes the inserts and updates as they arrive. And some people will use a streaming thing like Spark Streaming or Storm for that. Uh, sometimes HBase makes its way in there as well. And then they, they're also writing to some kind of log, which they bulk ingest into something like Parquet, which is a static data store. And they can kind of combine these two stores for analytics and queries. Uh, so it's an architecture that can be built, but it usually involves teeing your data in chest into two places, running at least two, if not three, different systems for storage. Like maybe you have Kafka plus HBase plus HDFS, uh, and you have kind of all three of them become the source of record. And that, that can be pretty difficult to manage and understand what's going on. Um, so that's one architecture I've seen. Another is to, I think I mentioned this earlier, basically ingest into something like HBase and have a nightly job which dumps HBase into Apache Parquet, the columnar format on HDFS. And that nightly job allows them to run analytics on the columnar store. Uh, but their analytics then become like up to 24 hours stale, which is not so right. great if you're trying to do like real-time fraud detection or notice that you've got a pattern where all of a sudden your sales dropped off a cliff in some zip good because you have some problem there. Uh, so you do end up kind of paying for these workarounds. And the more advanced your ops and developer team are, the more you can kind of paper over the workarounds by you know, running your incremental dumps once a minute and have small files, which you compact into larger files. And um, you know, it can be done. It's not impossible, but it does take a lot of engineering. And when you end up with a system that's somewhat fragile because you have all these moving parts and cron jobs and schedulers trying to, to keep the whole thing running smoothly. Right. So I think we've now articulated a lot of the problems in the Hadoop storage ecosystem that we wanted to, to, to set the context for Kudu. So what is Kudu? So Kudu is a new storage engine that's trying to 
kind of fill this gap. Um, so we identified that HDFS is very good for these long scans and analytics, but it doesn't offer any ability to ingest row by row or to go back and make an update of a previous row. Um, again, because it's just doing bytes, and when you just have like these random bytes, it's hard to go at, in the middle of a file without rewriting the entire file. Um, so basically, HDFS is very good at analytics, but not so good at the random access. HBase, we identified, is good at random access, but not so good at analytics. So the idea with Kudu is to be something that's pretty good at both. We're not going to try to you know, be faster than HDFS for the scans. Um, we'd like to just be comparable, uh, maybe a little slower. So, okay. And then same with HBase. We don't want to beat out HBase for these semi-structured, totally random access, no scan type online serving applications. Uh, but if we're kind of in that same order of magnitude and we offer those capabilities, that's good enough. And the key thing here is that we, we're not better than either system in the things they specialize at, but we're pretty good at both things. So if you have an architecture like this, where you're trying to um, kind of periodically dump from one system to the other and synchronize to, you can just simplify your life quite a bit by just putting your data in this new storage system called Kudu. Uh, so Kudu gives you pretty good in all respects, and that simplification is worth it for most uh, most businesses, where you spend a lot more time and effort on um, building your actual application instead of building these workarounds and uh, synchronization pipelines, etc. So you've said that Kudu is a storage system. What is the difference between a database and a storage system? Uh, so basically, you can look at the Hadoop stack in some ways as taking a traditional database and blowing it up into a lot of little pieces. So if you buy like um, Oracle Database or Teradata or something, you get this nice monolithic product where the only access mechanism is SQL. And the only thing you can store are SQL tables for the most part. They may have some blob storage, but it's not a file system, right? So instead in the Hadoop stack, what we have is uh, basically a separation of concerns between the storage and the actual access mechanisms. So you can still put together the Hadoop stack to look a little bit like a traditional database. So you could run Kudu for storage, which gives you tabular storage, and you could run Impala above that which gives you SQL access. And the resulting uh, system looks kind of SQL-esque in that you can do insert, update, delete, select, just like a SQL database. But Kudu itself is only the bottom half of that. And if you don't care about SQL, that's fine too. You could just run your Spark jobs and write code in Scala and access the data in Kudu with no SQL involved. So it's sort of um, a joke that it's not no SQL, it's BYO SQL. Anybody can bring their own SQL engine and run it on top. Uh, so right now, the, the thing we mostly support is Impala. Um, but we're also talking to folks who work on Apache Drill, for example, about building a drill connector. And it, de depending on you know what you use for other parts of your stack, you can kind of bring your own access engines, whatever you're familiar with, uh, to do the applications that you need. The Kudu white paper is called Kudu, Storage for Fast Analytics on Fast Data. To articulate further what Kudu is and what the motivation for it is. Could you explain that title in more detail? Yeah, so the the storage engine part is basically what I just mentioned. We're only doing storage. Kudu itself doesn't speak SQL itself. Uh, we rely on something else above it. Uh, the fast analytics refers to the fact that we can scan the accumulated data, meaning read all of it or read a subset of the columns, uh, as close as possible to the bare metal speed. Um, so HDFS is kind of the, the optimum here, where it's really just reading raw bytes off disk. You can't really beat it. Uh, it's the limit. But we'd like to be pretty much in that same kind of efficiency zone. And then fast data is, is kind of a marketing term. Uh, but the <laughs> idea here is that the data isn't static. It's something that's actually changing over time, where you may have updates coming in. You may be inserting data, streaming it in from a system. Um, and this is all put together into one system. So as you insert a data or a piece of data, you can then run a select query, you know, a millisecond later, and that data change is reflected. Uh, there's no, no long pipeline or merging step that you have to wait for. Uh, so that's sort of the idea: is that it's this very dynamic system where data is immediately available for analytics, and those analytics are still fast. So given the traditional Hadoop stack 
that we discussed in the first portion of our conversation, what is Kudu replacing? So I think it's not replacing any individual component. The idea is to replace those exotic pipelines that people have built up uh, where you're ingesting in one thing and then you need a different access mechanism so you're periodically dumping and synchronizing and paying your operators a lot to stay up in the middle of the night to fix it when it breaks. Uh, the idea is really simplification. Um, so certainly there's some people who are misusing a previous system. Like I've seen people try to build a very, very structured relational database um, on HBase for analytics. And the performance they get disappoints them. Uh, so maybe we'll replace HBase in those places where people have misused HBase. But we're not, not trying to deprecate HBase. We still have quite a big HBase team. Um, I still help out those guys sometimes when they're looking at things that you know, I have more experience. We take some, um, take some advice from them on things they have more experience in. We sit next to each other in the office. Uh, same with HDFS. I sit across from the HDFS tech lead at Cladera. And their team is just as large, actually larger, than the Kudu team. There's no plans to deprecate or stop investing in those other projects. Uh, like I said earlier, we're not going to be better than those projects at the things they specialize in. We're trying to aim for this happy medium that kind of fits in between them on the spectrum of the analytics side and the um, you know, fast-changing random access side. So let's talk more about that. How is Kudu this middle ground alternative to uh, you know, for systems that would otherwise use HDFS and HBase for the the polar ends of this, um, you know, this data speed spectrum. Uh, so, in terms of performance, we've done a lot of comparison versus running Impala on Apache Parquet, which is this fully static, immutable uh, data storage format on HDFS, and we found that for data that actually fits in the RAM of your cluster. Um, we're pretty competitive currently. We think that, so specifically the numbers we have is we can run the TPCH benchmark, which is a pretty standard analytics benchmark, for a small data set, actually 30% faster on Kudu than Parquet. Uh, that said, we don't think that's the limit. We think that there's just some more optimizations that we've happened to implement that they haven't done yet. Uh, once they do, they'll probably be faster than us. Um, but we're in the same order of magnitude. And then we've also run YCSB, uh, which is, uh, people may be familiar with it, it's a NoSQL kind of standard benchmark that does random read, write, uh, update. And in that case, we're somewhere around half as fast as HBase for the, the workload we've tried. Um, there are some workloads where, where HBase will still be significantly faster. Um, so again, there are those specialized systems where if, if you're just doing web serving, like maybe your Facebook messages and all you care about is loading a user's inbox as fast as possible or uh, ingesting a lot of data, HBase is going to do better for you. Uh, but as we fit in between, you know, if we're 50% slower, but it simplifies your architecture and you need to hire half as many engineers to build the architecture, that's probably a trade-off most companies are willing to make. Describe the Kudu API from the point of view of the user. Um, so we have a couple different access mechanisms. Some users, I think, will see this only as an internal piece of a larger Hadoop um, system. So they would say, okay, I just access Hadoop via SQL. The fact that Kudu's underneath is completely hidden from them. They'll just use insert, update, select, create table, drop table, et cetera. So those folks won't see the Kudu API at all. It's really just a storage engine for SQL tables. Um, another set of users are the, the Java and C++ developers. And there we have APIs. Uh, public APIs, you can go read the docs on the website, that look a lot like a NoSQL-style store. So you have a programmatic way to insert a row of data, and you create a row object, um, set the columns that you care about, and call uh, insert, basically. And looks pretty much the same way that you interact with uh, a JDBC in terms of creating the rows, and similar to the way you interact with HBase for doing the actual inserts and reads. Um, so that exists in both Java and C++. And we have an experimental Python client as well, uh, which has some known issues, but eventually we'll, we'll probably make that stable as well. Um, that's kind of the NoSQL style access. And then, of course, if you're a data scientist, you might just be accessing this as uh, an RDD from Spark. Uh, so maybe some people in your organization are dealing with the ingest pipeline, and they're using some kind of a Java application to insert the rows. And then you're a data scientist and you want to run k-means clustering or something. 
and you just see this as an, another RDD that looks just like any other Hadoop RDD. Um, you don't have to worry about APIs or SQL or anything else. So in order to perform an update in Kudu, a user makes a change to log-structured storage. What is log-structured storage? Uh, so this is basically getting into the internals of Kudu itself. So the user, a typical user, shouldn't need to concern themselves. Um, if you're interested in contributing to, to Kudu, you do have to understand <laughs> this. Uh, basically, the idea, the overall idea of log-structured storage is that as you update or insert data, we don't actually go find the row that you're updating on disk and change it in place. Um, so you can imagine, let's, let's pretend again it's like the, the TSV file. If you're updating a row in the middle of that TSV file, it's pretty expensive to go find that row and update it, especially if the length might change. Um, so imagine you a string column and you want to make it longer. Then you've shifted everything else in the file up ahead, and you'd basically have to rewrite the whole file, which wouldn't be efficient. So the way log-structured storage works is instead you write to a separate file and say, hey, here's a, a log of the updates that we've made to the file. And at read time, the, the internals um, of Kudu that are reading this can read the original data and then see this separate file, which we call a delta file, and say, oh, th this row originally had value x, but I see this update record that happened, and the update says the new value is y. So I'm going to expose the, the value as y, not x, because the update has been applied. And then later, at some point, uh, a background process will merge those updates back into the, the base data file um, so that they don't have to do this roll-forward application on every read. Right. So uh, to exemplify that, that uh, log-structured storage transaction process and the, uh, the API further, can you explain end-to-end -end what happens, uh, both from the user and from just the underlying system's perspective, what happens in like a write operation, and a read operation, a delete operation, if you could just contrast these? Yeah, um, so this could turn into like a 45-minute talk. Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> I'd encourage... Whatever, what, maybe maybe just you can simplify and just do one, one yeah, example. Yeah, so I'd whatever, encourage whatever. anybody who's really interested in the gory details. Uh, the talk that I gave at Strata a few weeks ago is online. There's a video of it and the slides as well. So you, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, so you can go find all the, the gory details. I'll give the kind of the high-level overview here, try to keep it to a few minutes, uh, <laughs> just to not bore everybody in case anybody's driving and listening to this. We don't want to cause accidents. <laughs> uh, so basically the idea from the user perspective is you create a Kudu client object. Let's say you're, I'm talking about the Java API here. A Kudu client object you configure with the location of the Kudu master, uh, which is kind of this coordinator node in the cluster, kind of like the HDFS name node or the HBase master. Um, so you create that object that connects, uh, verifies you know, the, the cluster is up and running. Uh, then you create something we call a session. So a Kudu session is basically a, a stream of inserts, updates, or deletes. And you can set things on that session like your desired consistency properties, timeouts. Um, later, we're going to add features like I.O. priorities. Uh, all that kind of stuff is on a per-session basis. Then you open a table. So you, you may have an existing table already, and you call open table, pass the table name, and that verifies that the table exists and fetches the schema of the table. So the schema being the, the list of columns um, and their types. So once you have the session and the table, you can create row objects uh, for inserts, updates, or deletes. So you say table.newInsert. Um, you know, set your columns that you care about for the row that you're going to insert. And then you call session.apply, which actually kind of ships that inserted row uh, to the, the servers, to the cluster. Um, so the client then is a fairly thick client. And given that row that it needs to insert, can figure out which servers that row belongs on. And um, the, the table itself has been split up into smaller chunks we call tablets. Uh, tablets are very much like HBase regions. They're basically a small horizontal partition of the table. And the tablet will be hosted with three replicas on three different servers. So the client figures out which one of those replicas is currently designated the leader replica and sends the, the write, whether it's an update, insert, or delete, to that leader replica. Uh, the leader replica then 
performs a process uh, called consensus. So we use an algorithm called raft consensus. It's very similar to multi-Paxos, uh, which is uh, an older algorithm that's been around since the 90s at some point. Um, so basically that leader contacts the other replicas. They come to an agreement that, hey, this insert that you've just done, it's going to happen. Everybody agrees they're going to apply this insert. Um, and they all sort of hear back that, okay, this thing has been proposed and agreed upon. So then all the replicas in parallel actually apply the insert to the data. So there they, they've written the insert to a local file called a, a write-ahead log, uh, sort of like a transaction log in a database. And then they also apply that insert to an in-memory store. Um, at that point, the insert's complete and we can respond to the client. So while it's in that in-memory store, it's not, uh, the data itself isn't durable, but that log record is. So if we were to crash, we can replay it from the log. Mm. Um, and then later, we have a background process which can flush that in-memory store onto disk. And when it's flushed to disk, it's also converted to the columnar layout so that for analytics, it's very fast. Uh, so that's sort of the, the quick high-level overview of an insert. Sure. I think the, no, that's great. The slides are probably um, a little bit more helpful with diagrams and such. Sure, sure. And for people who may be, like, really confused right now, um, I mean, let's talk a bit about, you know, just basic replication and consensus. Why... Why are replication and consensus, which you talked about with, you know, Raft maintaining the the consensus between uh, the the replicas, why are why are replication and consensus so important to a Hadoop cluster? Uh, so the idea here is that this isn't a system that runs on one node; it runs on a cluster of nodes. Typically, I'd say our customers' average cluster is at least you know tens, um, probably between ten and a hundred nodes is the average. But they can get up into the thousand plus, you know, four thousand, five thousand node size. Uh, so if you have that many machines storing a really big table, and any one of them crashes, you obviously can't just say to the user like, "Oh, sorry, we lost one uh, percent of your data. It was on that machine which died." You have to assume that all of the machines at any point could crash, and keep different copies of the data around the cluster. So there's a, a number of different ways to do that. Uh, the one that Kudu uses is consensus. So basically, each little chunk of the table, the tablets that I mentioned, have been assigned uh, three locations, three different servers. So if any one of those servers crashes, we still have two more, and we can still read and write that data. Um, and then in the background, we can you know, make a new third copy. So as a, an edit comes into the leader replica, it will um, talk to the other replicas. They'll all agree, OK, this edit happened. It's important that they agree so that they don't diverge over time. You know, if you just applied it locally and didn't send it to the replicas or sent it asynchronously to the replicas, it's possible that these different replicas would start to diverge. And if, if you did that, you'd end up with something a lot more like what Cassandra offers, where there's eventual consistency and hopefully things reconverge in the future. Instead, Kudu chooses strict consistency, where every update, uh, insert, or delete is completely agreed upon across all the replicas before proceeding. Um, I've sort of simplified a few things here. It actually is majority-based rather than talking to all of the replicas, so that if one of the followers, one of the other replicas crashes, you can continue to make progress while it's down. Uh, and of course, if the, the designated leader crashes, then the other two nodes that remain can talk to each other and elect a new leader very, very quickly on the order of about five seconds. And these these different servers in a Kudu cluster have different roles, and this is typical for a distributed computing architecture. You have different types of roles that different servers play. What are these roles? Like, talk about the master server and um, the the other ones. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just have two types of servers in Kudu. We have master servers and tablet servers. So the the tablet servers are the things I was just talking about which actually host the data, uh, have write-ahead logs, perform reads and writes. Uh, so in your cluster, let's say you have 40 nodes, um, 39 of them, or maybe 37 of them, would be tablet servers, uh, and they host all the actual data. And then the remaining servers, uh, either one or three if you want redundancy, uh, would be the master. And the master... Uh, I'll talk about it as if it's a single thing. In practice, you can replicate the master for availability. But basically, the master is a logical single entity. And it keeps track of which tables actually exist in the cluster. Uh, so when you create a table, you talk to the master. 
it writes down locally and um, and replicates the other masters. Hey, this person's created this table. Here's uh, you know the schema of the table. In the future, as we add security, it's going to be in charge of keeping track of access control lists and things like that. Uh, so it's kind of this central metadata server. And then um, as the clients need to connect to the server or connect to the cluster, they are configured with the master address. And they can talk to the master saying, hey, I'd like to write to this table called users. Uh, where, you know, where are the different tablets? Tell me which tablet servers to talk to. Uh, tell me what its schema is. Am I allowed to access it? So it, it's basically this central directory. Um, I sometimes compare it to a phone book, where when you make a, a phone call, you're not actually talking to the phone book, but you look up something in the phone book first, and it tells you, you know, which, uh, which phone number to call. In the same way, when the client's writing data, it doesn't write data through the master. It just talks to the master quickly and says, hey, what's the, what's the address? Which server should I go talk to for this table or for this row? And then it gets that information and can uh, cut out the, the master from the critical path following that. So Kudu's development has been driven by changes in hardware at typical big data deployments. So let's zoom out and talk about that a bit. You work at Cloudera, and you see a large variety of big data consumers. What are the changing trends in consumer hardware that suggested the direction to go with Kudu? Uh, yeah, so I've been at Cloudera for coming up on seven years now. Uh, so when I started in early 2009, the typical machine that our customers deployed had, um, if we were lucky, dual quad-core processors and um, probably 16 gigs of RAM. It was pretty typical at that point. And now, you know, six, seven years later, a uh, typical machine has 128 gigs of RAM and at least dual hex-core starting to get to dual octa-core. Uh, so the machines themselves are much more capable and the RAM prices have fallen quite a bit. Uh, so some trade-offs that didn't make sense before, where we assumed that, we, that RAM was a very, very scarce resource, uh, now make a lot more sense. Um, so you can, you can choose underlying algorithms and data structures that just rely on a, a bigger ratio of RAM to storage. Uh, another really big one that's, that's kind of coming still, uh, not completely taken effect, is solid-state storage. Uh, so... Six years ago, solid state was incredibly expensive. People used it only for like very, very high transaction rate databases, uh, transaction rate databases, uh, because the IOs per second from an SSD were just much better than spinning disks. Uh, it's still the case that spinning disks are cheaper for like long-term archival storage. You can get like a 10 terabyte drive now in a single, you know, single enclosure, 10 terabyte drive. So we don't see them going away. But what we do see is that the prices of SSDs are competitive now to at least consider putting one flash drive on a machine that may also have you know, 10 to 12 spinning drives. And the flash drive performance characteristics are so different that, again, it merits us reconsidering some of the data structures and algorithms that we chose uh, in the original Hadoop stack. Um, so historically, Hadoop... HDFS and HBase were based off of papers written at Google in 2003 and 2006, uh, the GFS and Bigtable papers. And those were completely based on spinning drives and um, you know, a couple of them per machine and a small amount of RAM. And uh, if you reevaluate all those decisions based on today's hardware, a lot of them just don't make a lot of sense. You know, they're always assuming that any random access is going to hit a spinning disk and take you know, 10 milliseconds plus. Uh, nowadays, with solid state, you can hit the SSD for a lot of random access, and it'll take a couple hundred microseconds probably. And then the next generation is actually just being released now. Um, so at the Intel Developer Forum back in August, I believe, they announced a new technology called 3D Crosspoint. And 3D Crosspoint is essentially the next generation of actual like underlying solid-state media. So the current generation is NAND Flash, and this next generation has a different physical architecture and it offers another couple orders of magnitude improvement in how fast the how low latency the, the storage is. Um, so now it's actually approaching RAM speeds. So again, if you make these huge order of magnitude shifts in the performance characteristics of storage, it kind of merits uh, rethinking some of the decisions you made up above. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that the the uh, the Kudu paper discusses is that with spinning disk storage, 
you might have slow CPU speed that gets hidden beneath a bottleneck in storage speed. But with solid-state drives, the storage gets faster. And with the faster storage, this can reveal these slow and inefficient CPU operations. So how does Kudu encourage better CPU efficiency? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, so if you look at the throughput available from spinning disks, if you get 10 or 12 spinning disks all spinning in parallel, you're lucky to get about a gigabyte and a half per second of data coming through. Um, and it's pretty easy for for your, your dual octa-core CPU to process a gigabyte and a half per second. Um, but if instead you get a couple of flash drives going, you can easily get 6 gigs or 9 gigs a second. Or if your data set fits in RAM, because we have so much RAM now, uh, you can get 20 plus gigabytes a second. So the CPU efficiency uh, kind of measured on number of CPU cycles per row processed. Uh, that becomes pretty important. Um, so some of the design trade-offs here are kind of getting into the details of implementation. Um, columnar storage is one particular one where when you lay out these data, these data sets by column and you have things like an integer column, you can lay them out in such a way that you, know, you get every, every sequential row uh, is exactly sequential in memory. So you just have four bytes for the first row, four bytes for the next row, etc. And you can then load them into these really wide CPU registers and use what's called SIMD instructions, which is single instruction, multiple data. So you basically have loaded four or eight uh, rows worth of data from one column into this big wide CPU register. And then in a single CPU clock cycle, you can do some operation like add that or you know compute the sum um, or run some predicates some comparison across eight in one cycle. Uh, that's much harder to do in a non-columnar architecture. Right, okay. Um, so what about adoption? What kinds of users are adopting Kudu? So it's still early days. We just announced it about a month ago. Um, I'd say the biggest public user that we can highlight is uh, Xiaomi. So Xiaomi, for those who don't know, is the, I think it's the second largest mobile phone manufacturer, maybe third largest in the world. They're number one in China. They basically make this device based on Android, I believe. Looks pretty similar to an iPhone. And they've got over a billion customers because, uh, you know, China's huge. And yeah, this is like a 20-something billion dollar company. Yeah, it's, it's really an incredible story. People should go read about it if you haven't. It's like a five-year-old company that's worth 20 billion plus and has a you know, billion customers, and it's crazy. Uh, so anyway, they've, they've got all these cell phones out there running applications, and they have a lot of server-side applications, somewhat similar to like iCloud if you're an iPhone user, where users can back up their photos and they can you know, back up their email and interact with these server-side um, you know, SaaS products and... Of course, it's really critical that people have a good experience, and they've got a lot of logs coming off of this. So one of the first applications that they're building on Kudu, they've actually been working with us for probably like nine or ten months now. In you know, pre-release, they were getting uh, private beta. Uh, they've got a cluster of around 70 nodes, and they're ingesting about 5 billion events per day. And these events are essentially a phone has connected to a back-end SaaS product, and the, the product probably did some RPCs to other back-end services, and they log all of that. So if they then get a customer service issue from a phone or the phone crashes, they've got all these logs of everything that phone has done talking to their service, and they can diagnose you know, latency issues or error rates, things like that. Uh, and it's really critical for them that the data, as they ingest it, is immediately available because they may have a phone crash, and then they quickly want to see that, you know, what did this phone just do before the crash? Or, um, I mean, more interestingly, these macro-level trends. Like, they, they roll out a new software update of one of their back-end services, and then they want to closely monitor the error rates and the latencies and stuff coming off those RPC logs. Um, so as they roll out the service, they're just monitoring the last minute worth of data, and Kudu makes it very easy to ingest that data and make it available for real-time analytics. Right. Yeah, that's some pretty... Sounds like some pretty important gains. Um so what was their onboarding process like? Did they have to deprecate any previous systems, or did they build a brand new system using Kudu? Uh, so I don't know a ton about what they've got running currently. I think this is mostly a new system. Um, okay. I know that they had done some architecture planning ahead of this, and they were going to use a system uh, based on Scribe. Uh, Scribe is sort of like Flume uh, or Kafka, basically a way of ingesting logs into text files. 
Uh, so they had this idea of using Scribe, writing it into um, these little files, which they roll once a minute, and then periodically uh, sort of merging those sm small files together and having these kind of complicated pipelines. I think HBase may have been involved in there as well. Um, actually, one of the engineers who's behind this from Xiaomi uh, is in the video I mentioned earlier, the Strata talk, talking about this. So basically, they had a pretty complicated pipeline planned, um, and the latency from data generation to data availability was fairly high because they had to go through all these steps in the pipeline and be on the order of minutes, if not hours. Uh, and then the other big issue they had in the original design was that they often have data reported much later than the data was actually generated. So you can imagine you're a phone and you've got some logs being generated on your phone, but you go out of reception for a day because you're traveling in the country or something. And then you come back into reception and the phone needs to upload those logs back to the, the central um, you know, event store. Uh, but if you've already done these things like roll yesterday's logs and compact them into a big parquet file, and then you get these late arriving updates that say, oh, actually, we need to insert some more data for yesterday. It's pretty difficult to deal with that. Whereas in Kudu, they just handle those late arriving updates and inserts exactly the same as the current data. And Kudu itself takes care of um, all the underlying compactions and stuff that's necessary. What components of Kudu are you working on now? Uh, so right now, our, our kind of main goals, one is building an open source community. Uh, I don't know that we've actually mentioned this in this podcast yet, uh, but Kudu is 100% open source Apache licensed, and we're planning to contribute it to the Apache Foundation as well. Um, so we're working on building up a community. We've got a couple outside people who have started to contribute. Um, you know, one guy's helping out with a Mac OS X port. Uh, a couple of folks have built different Docker images to start Kudu, which is pretty cool. Um, so basically, anybody who's interested in contributing, we're spending a lot of our time helping those folks. Uh, in terms of actual product features, one is the OS X support, uh, which we think will be pretty important for developer adoption. Another is um, security features. We're about to start implementing those for a GA 1.0 release. We think that things like authentication and authorization are pretty critical, and those don't exist right now in our, our current public beta. Uh, so basically building out those important enterprise features like security, uh, working a lot more on integrations, shoring up our Spark integration in particular needs some work, uh, and just usability and bug fixes, things like that. So there's not any like major new stuff that we're working on. Uh, it's mostly just taking what we have, really making it solid, and really making it usable in an enterprise environment before we can go and actually sell this thing to our customer base. What do you see as the future of the Hadoop ecosystem? Well, that's a big question. Um, so I, my personal view is sort of what I mentioned earlier, where you have this this idea of like a database that you've had in the 1990s or 2000s, uh, and we take that thing and split it up into a lot of different component parts, and that makes it a lot more flexible than the original database. So certainly you can reconfigure those parts back together and make something that looks database-like, but that's kind of underselling the opportunity here. It's a lot more interesting when we see things where some people are running SQL workloads, some people are building search indexes, some people are building, um, they're running a Spark to generate advanced machine learning models. Uh, all that stuff's happening on the same data set rather than three or four different systems. So I think that's pretty exciting, and we're just starting to get there to make that actually usable and easy. It's been possible for a long time, but now it's actually getting fairly simple to build. Um, so that, that's kind of the near-term future. And I think as we have more of these systems that are available to do random access, uh, we'll see people actually starting to serve data and run transactions and stuff um, within the confines of Hadoop rather than exporting them entirely to different systems. Uh, we're not there yet. I think like the, the relational databases out there do a great job of that, and they're going to continue to do a better job of that than we will uh, for the, the near-term future. Um, Long-term, I think it'll be interesting to see like how these two different systems compare. What are the other projects in the Hadoop ecosystem that excite you? Uh, so Spark's always exciting. They're moving really, really fast. Um, it seems like every couple months there's a new version that does something new. And uh, we've got a team at Cloudera working on that as well. Uh, we just announced a, an initiative called One Platform Initiative, where we're basically working on Spark to make it really fit into the Hadoop ecosystem. Uh, some people have reported, like, oh, Spark is going to kill Hadoop. And we don't see it that way at all. 
we see Spark as another component of the Hadoop ecosystem um, that really in, improves the capabilities of Hadoop. Uh, and same is true with Kudu. A couple of people have said, like, oh, Kudu is out to kill HDFS, and that's not true either. Uh, really, the idea here is that we have this fairly um, flexible system, this Hadoop ecosystem, and you can pick and choose the parts that make sense for your application. And we're not throwing away the old ones when we add the new ones. We're figuring out uh, new ways of expanding the capabilities and simplifying uh, the architectures that you can build on top of it. So I'm doing a show about Apache Flink tomorrow. Um, do you have any suggestions for what to ask? No, I actually don't know a lot about Flink. Um, okay. I followed it a little bit a couple of years ago when it was, if I remember correctly, it was a research project called Stratosphere at some point. Yes. That, that's the same one, right? Yeah. yeah. So I read up on it a little bit at that point. It seemed like they had some pretty bold claims, um, but I've never actually tried it, so I don't know whether those claims are realistic or not. Uh, okay. We've seen some some beginning interest in it. Uh, I think the question I'd be interested to know is, do they really think they have a fundamental advantage over the the better adopted uh, systems that are similar? Uh, so versus Spark, for example, is Spark going to completely subsume all their capabilities, or do they really have something that's unique that's better than Spark? Um, you know that that kind of question. Like, do, do we really need two, or should we just kind of join forces? Uh, with the thing that's kind of the community standard. It seems like that's it's more of a niche at this point. Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I mean, couldn't that, that question could also be posed to Kudu, right? Yeah, the difference here is that Kudu truly has uh, storage capabilities that are very different than what we sure. have today. Like if you look at running a SQL query, um, Apache Phoenix is this project that runs SQL on HBase. And if you try to run an analytic query using Phoenix on HBase versus Impala on Kudu, it's like a 100x difference for a lot of queries. And, and that's the kind of difference that you can't just say, like, well, we'll just buy a few more machines. Buying 100x more machines is kind of expensive. Uh, if you're talking about a 20% difference or 30% difference, that's kind of in the realm of, yeah, just spend the money on hardware. It's cheap. Um, but 20x or 100x, it's not really in that, that same ballpark. Okay, well, Todd Lipcon, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you about Kudu. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast.